Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hey guys, so you should really know all of our classes are virtual right now. So every single one of you, no matter where you live in the world, can take our classes. We were trying to do whatever we can in this time to make things available for people. So here's what you need to know about that. Just go onto our website or go onto MindBody, sign up for any classes if you were here and you were going to do it. But you have to remember, we close signups 15 minutes before the class time starts. So if you miss that class, just sign up for the next one. We have over 10 classes a day, sometimes more than that. Our workshops are up there as well. So there's so much for you to dive into. Again, we want to be your support. And if there's other ideas that you have and ways we can support you or other podcast ideas that you have, please let us know. We're open ears. All we want to do is figure out how we can serve you guys and how we can serve you in the way that you need. But we need to hear from you. Thank you. So I wanted to introduce the Dentox podcast COVID-19 perspective series. The first episode was actually the one we put out a couple of weeks ago where we really helped you cultivate your space in this time of quarantine. But from that point on, we want every episode that we are doing right now to be something purposeful, something that can really help help you through this time, through this dark time for a lot of us, and not only help you, but also open you up to different ideas and different perspectives. So we are interviewing different people and bringing kind of their thoughts of what are going on and also ways that can help you get through it. Um, I feel like the more we're open right now, the more we can change. And the more we change, the more we're part of the bigger change that needs to happen. But we are still honoring the fact that this is scary and this is hard. And there's a lot of tips in all of these episodes and all of these interviews to help us all get through it together. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Den Talks Podcast. This is Hal. I am your host and the founder of Den Meditation. I'm really enjoying this uh, COVID-19 perspective series, at least selfishly for me, because I kind of like this full circle approach. I get to talk to all these incredible people who are just helping me understand, know, and kind of in some ways get ahead of it from all these different 
perspectives and angles. So today was one of those days I got to actually speak to a doctor, a Western doctor. She's a pulmonologist and not only a pulmonologist, so someone who works with the lungs. I mean, we can't get more specific and better than that. She's also a critical care pulmonologist. So she's in it. This is Dr. Stephanie. We cover everything from the science faction, like what is going on, how to really understand this virus, what it feels like, and also what's happening in the system. Because don't forget, we've talked about it. This is happening to everyone. Everyone is affected. Some of us financially, some of us physically, some of us with loss. I mean, it is really attacking everyone at all levels. And you got to remember those first responders, those people on the line, they too are being affected in a very different way. So I think it's really interesting to also hear about it from her point of view and talking about kind of this patient doctor and also nurse relationship and how are things changing in the system? How is this virus permeating not only people's lungs, but the lives and our civilization and our healthcare system? It is a really interesting conversation. She has a brilliant ability of kind of breaking things down. So kind of heavier concepts about the virus itself that you might want to understand. She does a great job helping us, someone like me, who is not a doctor, understand really easily. I hope you enjoy it. Please go on our Facebook page, Dentalks Podcast. Let us know what you think. Um, And again, let us know if you have any specific ideas of anyone or any type of person you'd like us to speak to. We're here for you. We want to help. Enjoy the episode. today with Stephanie, who works in Portland, is a doctor, pulmonary critical care. And even though you guys aren't yet a hot spot, you're in it, you're seeing it, you're dealing with it. And obviously you keep up and are dealing with other people who are probably more in hot spots. Is there fear for you guys that you will soon be? It'll increase in your area? Or do you guys feel like it's under control kind of in Portland? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I'd say um, for the last three weeks, at least, Uh, we've been in a pretty heavy planning mode um, on all fronts in preparation um, because we're not far from Seattle and Seattle was the first sort of initial hotspot in the U S our proximity to that city obviously put everyone on guard. And we have a lot of communication with the physicians working up in the Seattle area. So just being able to hear firsthand about what they've been dealing with made it, I think a little more real up front. Um, So all of the hospital systems in our regional area have been trying to be really, really proactive to prepare for a surge. And every day it seems like the models change a little bit. So in terms of whether or not it'll actually happen and exactly how bad it'll be, that seems to shift from time to time. But we've done our best to put measures in place so that if numbers really increase in a very short time period, hopefully we're really prepared for that um, and can handle it. So. That is interesting when you talk about models changing. I mean, does, that must make it kind of hard for you guys. Or do you just put a different mindset on? Like, what, how do you handle that? I think, it, I think it depends. I think every person handles it a little bit differently. Um, we have um, all of our physician leadership in the various hospitals, um, I, I think, are paying a lot of attention to the modeling because they need to use something for planning. And, and that makes a lot of sense. And they're in communication with um, teams up in Seattle to, to give them a sense of how to prepare. And then for those of us who are more just sort of practicing clinicians, um, I haven't spent a lot of time looking at modeling because I think on the one hand, it makes me, I don't want to get complacent, but at the other time, at the other end of the spectrum, I don't want to be more anxious than right. I need to be. So I kind of, I, for me personally, just sort of keeping my head down, focusing one day at a time, one week at a time, and uh, knowing that uh, there are plenty of those above me that are thinking really big picture so we can sort of, you know, focus on our day to day. 
So when this started in like, you started probably hearing about it in China, especially you being in, you know, a pulmonary critical care. I mean, at first when it seemed far away, was it more of interest? Like, wow, something to learn about because it's so much about the lungs and so much about what you do. Mm-hmm. And then as it got closer, was it more like, oh, oh shit. Like you yeah. guys, more than anyone are going to be like in the right. heat of it. Um, that's a that's a great question. Actually, um, interesting that you asked that because when we first started to hear reports in December of 2019, um, you know, we were all gathering together for you know Christmas holidays, and you know, we had family in town, and so there's a lot of us, you know, just time off, spending time together. And my husband pays a lot of attention to the news; he's a physician as well, and he um, started to tell me, he's like, "Have you heard about this virus in China?" And he was really worried. He's like this is, it's just going to be a matter of months before it's, uh, it's on our doorstep because we're such a global community now. I mean, travel between countries is nothing, right? People do it all the time. Um, And the sheer number of people that move from place to place is unfathomable. So the minute that we were hearing reports that they were building two new hospitals to handle the volume of patients, that was a huge warning sign. Um, that, that's just not something that happens for, you know, it doesn't happen for influenza. It doesn't happen right. for seasonal viruses. So that definitely seemed to indicate that this was, this was different than what we had experienced. I mean, when was yeah. the last time anything like that ever really, it's funny because everyone right now, not to get political, keeps comparing this to like the swine flu because, you know, administrations like to attack right. administrations. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting. So this morning I actually went back and I was like, I went to the numbers and for a while you could compare it number wise, but now there's, I mean, no comparison. We've we've surpassed those numbers in one month. That took yeah. fifteen months, I think, to right. fifteen months to get to around thirteen thousand deaths in the U.S. for swine yeah. flu. Right now, and it just went up because New York just announced, and this is at this moment that you and I are talking. So by the time this even releases, it's going to be higher. We're mm-hmm. at nine, over nineteen thousand deaths, and it's been a month in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you can't even compare it. No, you can't. And um, I was in training, I was doing my fellowship training for pulmonary and critical care medicine um, at the time that H1N1 um, hit us pretty hard. Uh, And I remember that season really well. It stood out from all other flu seasons. Um, But it's the way that felt and the way we were um, handling that was completely different from what the, the environment has been here in the last few months. Talk about is that, this is an interesting question from your perspective, is that because of what you're seeing walk in the door or is that because of what is being talked about and the news and kind of, you know, the stay at home qualities? Yeah, um, well, obviously the, the news are surrounding it and the, the uh, statewide orders and such and restrictions, that's obviously very different. But it's not, I know I, I have, friends and, and colleagues and, you know, acquaintances who have various times have said, you know, are we just hyping this up a little bit? But I think what it comes down to is when we were hit with H1N1 in 09, um, there's still, we have vaccinations for influenza. Now, granted, that serotype wasn't something that was included, but our history with influenza vaccinations is long. And even in a season where the efficacy of the vaccine is relatively low, there is still, generally speaking, a fairly good cross-reactivity. So those that, I see it every season, those that are vaccinated, even if they're unfortunate enough to get ill, they tend to have much milder illnesses and recover faster and with fewer complications. Um, We're dealing with a virus that we have, we didn't even have the ability to test for it. So, um, 
we were starting off in a completely, not only were we questioning, you know, how do we recognize this illness and, and be on top of diagnosing it, but we were limited in how we could actually even diagnose. And then the concerns surrounding about how do we isolate patients? What type of level of uh, precautions are necessary? Um, do they have to be in droplet precautions or does it actually have to be airborne? There were just so many questions that don't come hand in hand with a flu season. And you still don't fully have all those answers. I think we have, I think we have, um, I feel like our sense of that has gotten a lot better. Um, But that being said, yes, there are still unknowns. Um, All of us are keeping a close eye on the literature as we're getting daily new publications, sharing information. And a couple weeks back, there was a publication in the New England Journal. um, They had done testing about how long this virus can actually survive on various types of surfaces. And that was pretty eye-opening to know that, you know, it could could last as long as three days on a plastic surface. So, um, yes, there's definitely been ongoing information and learning that's constantly happening. Um, So we're not, uh, I don't think anyone that I'm working with is being complacent about it. But at the same time, I think we're in a better position now than we were a few weeks ago. And how do you, and as far as like a pulmonologist, like when you look at treating, because like, I like that you said it took us a long time to figure out how to, you know, even see it, test for it, and then diagnose. But what about treat? Like, do you guys fully know yet how to even treat it? Or is that, you know, because that I'm sure is evolving every day too. It, it is, it is. And I think one of the most challenging things that many physicians are facing Um, centers around the fact that there's been so much um, news surrounding this and surrounding possible potential treatments that um, you're not only dealing with your own clinical judgment and trying to determine what's going to be best for your individual patient, but then also dealing with the fact that uh, we have patients calling in saying, I want hydroxychloroquine, I want you to prescribe this for me, and trying to explain to someone that this isn't a well-tested therapy it has not been proven to be effective. The initial studies that have been published or are pre-publications suggesting there might be benefit really come down to very small numbers that haven't been controlled. And the endpoints have not been um, uh, terribly impressive in some of those studies. So it, it, explaining to people that this isn't quite the, the magic bullet that um, some might make it out to be is difficult because you never want someone to, to have the impression that you're withholding something that's truly effective. We wouldn't, we wouldn't ever do that. Um, And we're utilizing it. It is being utilized in hospitalized patients, but um, it's important that we use these potential therapies in a manner where we can actually assess, not only are they safe, but are they effective? And that's best done in treatment trials. And wasn't there Um, something about that drug, and I'm sure I'm off, that it's also like, if you have certain underlying things, that's actually a really bad drug for you. And the problem is, one of some of those underlying things are really hard to know. A lot of people live with them forever and don't realize it. And then if I remember reading correctly, this was a while ago, and unfortunately they keep getting pummeled, especially like mm-hmm. in, with African-Americans, whatever that underlying thing is, and please jump in when I forget, happens yeah. to be more common and most of them don't realize they have it. So if then they walk in and they're like, give me this and they take it, it could actually be lethal for them and they would have had no clue why. Yeah, so there there are a few concerns. There's several. I mean, there's a long. If you if you look up the potential side effects, for example, of hydroxychloroquine, uh, the list is pretty long. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you look up the side effects for Tylenol, 
the list is pretty long. It's all about potential those commercials on TV. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's not to say that the most serious side effects possible of this medication are, are common per se, but the serious listed potential side effects are extremely serious. So it can cause um, severe bone marrow depression and basically shut down the bone marrow's function. It can cause a, um, uh, Stevens Johnson's reaction. So you get sloughing um, of all of your mucous membranes and, and tissues and it essentially function like a, an extensive burn, which is extremely dangerous. Um, you can obviously have severe allergic reactions and cardiac problems. So it's not, it's not a harmless medication by any stretch. And anytime we utilize any therapy, if we're not, um, if we're not balancing, if it's not clear that the risk of any potential therapy is outweighed by the benefit, then you're potentially only exposing your patient to risk. Um, and that's something that we really want to minimize, especially in the setting of a serious illness that is already going to affect them in very serious ways. Um, and for the issue that you mentioned about um, and, uh, African-Americans um, and also those of um, Middle Eastern descent um, has to do with G6PD deficiency. So there's, there's a lot of testing that is often done by rheumatologists before they utilize this medication, because it is utilized um, for rheumatologic conditions like lupus. And they, they do do a lot of upfront preparation to make sure that their patients are gonna be well monitored and safer. And for people who are trying to take this medication on their own or taking it as an outpatient basis, they may not be getting that initial pre-screening to help make sure that they're safe to take the medication. Right, it's interesting because I have a friend who has lupus and she couldn't get her, her monthly fill. Yeah, so scary yeah. Sad. It is. It's really unfortunate. And we've had pharmacies in the local area um, having to close down dispensing of the medication to prevent um, people who maybe shouldn't be getting the medication, who are trying to use it prophylactically, um, from, from being able to fill that. And I don't know how that's directly affecting our patients with lupus and other rheumatologic conditions. Um, I hope they're able to get their therapy. I haven't specifically heard from my colleagues in the rheumatology world that they're not able to get it, but it's definitely become a lot harder for them. I know that. So when you get, co it's so interesting. So it really tax the lungs and that's the scary part, right? Because I mean, you can get mm -hmm. the awful flu symptoms and nobody likes that and it's not easy, but chances are you'll recover from that. It tends to be when it starts to get lethal is when it's really gets into the lungs. And so what is that? It, 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 is it Filling, like what's happening? Is it filling it with phlegm? Is it impossible to get? What is happening to the lungs that is putting it to this place? Well, I think we're, we're still learning a lot on that front. What is a little bit more unique to this virus, it seems, is that it, um, it, has a, it, it attaches to a receptor directly on the type 2 pneumocytes. So a certain type of uh, lining cell of the lung alveolus or the air sac. So this um, is where the virus can actually bind and be incorporated into the cell and, and the infection takes hold. And the type 2 pneumocytes have, you know, roles in multiple things, but they're also um, part of your body's uh, system to uh, make surfactant that helps keep lung cells open and healthy. It, it's involved in your oxygen exchange. So it's part of that, that membrane that helps uptake oxygen. So um, it basically interferes with some of the very most primary functioning cells of the lungs themselves. So it's not even just that uh, viral low, lower respiratory tract infections tend to generate a lot of inflammation or can. And in doing so, you get inflammation is uh, in a series of uh, proteins that are um, uh, manufactured and secreted uh, signaling molecules. They will drive your immune system cells, your white blood cells to, to, um, 
uh, hone in and, and focus on the area of infection to try to engulf and contain infection. And in so doing, they generate things like pus and mucus. That's sort of a, a byproduct of your white blood cells uh, coming together and working to protect your body. Um, and that inflammation in the lungs is common with any lower respiratory tract infection. But this virus in particular seems to have um, a particularly, uh, it seems to hone in on some of the important cells in the lungs. And so it can cause dysfunction above and beyond just the inflammation that accompanies the infection, it seems. Um, I don't know that that's the clearest explanation no, no, no. and I'm by no means an Again, expert. as a layman, basically what you're saying, it goes into a part of your lung that is involved in the most basic function of exchanging oxygen and allowing yeah. the cells membranes to open up to allow you to breathe. So it's yeah. like it's like closing the gates before you even get in there in some way. And we, and we think this is why it leads to such um, significant uh, impact on oxygen levels. So um, these people who come into the hospital, those that need to be hospitalized, uh, universally low oxygen levels at some degree are present. And in some people that is really, really profound and they need to be in the ICU or they need to be on a mechanical ventilator. For others, it, it may just mean wearing oxygen um, through a, a nose cannula um, for the duration of their illness in the hospital. But it, it universally seems to, in patients who get more sick, cause low oxygen levels. It's pretty, um, pretty profound in some cases. So there was that for a little bit, there was, I don't know if a rumor or people were saying that then it was getting found that the respirators were actually making it worse. Do you hear that? Um, not, not specifically. I can, um, I, I don't, if I'm interpreting that correctly, um, something I counsel um, patients and families on um, is mechanical ventilators or respirators or breathing machines, um, however you want to refer to them. They're not, uh, they're a tool. So first and foremost, they don't treat or fix any infection. Um, they're a tool, they're a support tool. And like any tool that we use, just like any medicine, there is an upside and a downside. So I describe to people that the way a mechanical ventilator breathes for you or helps you breathe is in a way opposite to how you naturally breathe. Huh. So our lungs and our respiratory system are designed to function in a, in a negative airflow manner. So we draw air into our lungs when we breathe by generating a drop in pressure in the chest that pulls air in. So it's a very um, low pressure system to do that. When we use a mechanical ventilator, we push air into the lungs. So it's a positive pressure system. So we're actually getting air to flow from out to in by increasing the pressure level such that it, it forces air down. And that's not a natural way to breathe, as you can imagine. Right. And if you're not cautious um, with how you utilize the tool, the ventilator, um, you can do damage. So if you were to just uh, forcefully put air into someone's chest at uh, indiscriminate levels of pressure and you didn't pay attention or you overinflated the lungs repeatedly, that can lead to damage in itself. So the lungs don't, the lungs are very stretchy in their natural state and they are designed to be that way. But if you overstretch lungs and repeatedly do that with high levels of pressure, you can actually generate inflammation that does further damage. And that might be what that was referring to. That's so fascinating. How does it working like, and again, I don't know how inundated you guys have gotten, but I know you have friends and colleagues everywhere. How is it working when it's getting that inundated? Like you're, you, you, you I mean, you are literally the person, critical care, pulmonologist, like, but what about for other people? I know your husband's a physician. Like, how are people getting pulled in? And to what extent can they do stuff? What are they allowed? Like, how does it work in that sense? Um, yeah, so uh, we've had 
lots and lots and lots of uh, support offered from our colleagues in all different fields. So um, my practice being pulmonary and critical care means that I, I do critical care medicine and that obviously takes place in a hospital. Um, but my pulmonary practice is an outpatient uh, practice. So I see patients in the office for chronic lung disease, um, just like you'd go to an office visit with your primary care provider, for example. Um, so in the outpatient world, we're receiving support from our colleagues, um, trying to help manage their patients and, and limit how many um, office visits we're needing to perform ourselves just because we're less present in, in, the, in the office right now, which is you know not something we want, but unfortunately a reality of needing to spend a little more time in the hospital. And then in the hospital, our colleagues uh, working there, especially in the emergency department and in the anesthesiology department, they've been very, very supportive. So the emergency department has reworked some of their protocols in terms of um, if there's a high suspicion for coronavirus infection and someone has very low oxygen levels, they're putting people on breathing machines sooner because we, we've learned, unfortunately, that these um, people, when they get sick, they can get sick very, very quickly. Um, and our anesthesia uh, colleagues have made themselves available to come and support us in terms of um, being present to uh, assist with procedures. So when someone's in the ICU, putting them on a breathing machine and potentially needing to do other procedures can be very time consuming, especially when you're needing to put on very specialized uh, protective equipment to enter the room. Um, so all of that can really take up a lot of time. And any time that you're in the position of being in the room doing bedside care is time that you're not able to be present for all of the other patients on the unit necessarily. You want to be able to sit down and actually think through care and, and uh, care plans and talk to the rest of the team. And you can't be in two places at once. So a division of labor really, really helps um, get everyone timely care. So you've, you've seen kind of how the hive has changed. Yes. Like, that's interesting. So the systems within, and do you feel like it was kind of a natural shift or do you feel like it was someone with foresight being like, this is what has to happen or did it, was it? It was a it was a combination of both. I think we um, before we had even fully identified all of what our support needs would be as a as a unit or a department. Um, we had colleagues uh, uh, approaching us, emailing us, texting us, coming up and talking to us and saying, "Hey, um, I'm I'm available to help. Tell me what you need me to do. You know, what can I what can I do to assist?" Um, so there was there was a lot of volunteered support, um, and then as a group. And, and I know other groups have done this too, we came together and said, okay, if things get busier and we're needing help, how could we, who could we ask for help and what could that look for? What would our ask be? And it was really pretty organic that, you know, what we needed and what people were offering, you know, really came together very, very well. So um, I think we've been well supported. Because it is so true. Sometimes in anything, like when you get volunteers, you're so happy and excited, but yeah if the skill set doesn't lend itself to what you need, sometimes it can be more of a nuisance. Like nuisance isn't the best mm -hmm. word, but you know what I mean? It can be more of an obstacle that slows you down right. because then you're right. spending time either directing, helping, or ending up doing it anyway mm -hmm. with like a block. So it is interesting that you feel like it's actually smoothly, because that's what I was wondering too. I'm like with all these people, which is amazing, and all this medical care, but not every doctor is trained in a way that can actually be of service. Um, so yeah. it's, it's interesting that how the dance is working. Yeah, it's, it's thankfully because uh, I, I think the efforts in both um, Washington and Oregon have um, shown themselves to be, I, it appears they're being effective in terms of 
flattening the curve, um, uh, to use that term. So we're not being hit with overwhelming volumes. And that's really what that effort was about, because we're not going to unfortunately prevent people from getting sick necessarily by flattening the curve. But if we can slow the rate of illness and hospitalization to a manageable number and, and, um, turnover, then we have the capacity to take care of these people, take care of them well, and hopefully support them through this illness and see most people surviving. That's our goal. Um, it's when the system becomes overwhelmed that that changes. That's an interesting point, I think, for people to realize, like this staying at home, this being really careful. I mean, in, in, I'm in LA right now, we have mandatory, you can't leave the house without face masks. So and it's funny, I went to the supermarket the other day, the day before the mandatory face mask came out. And I was actually really frustrated because you could tell there's the people who just don't care and don't believe in it. And they're shopping with their friends and they don't have anything on. And I wanted to say to them, here's the thing. There's an old man right there who you might not have any clue. You might be carrying this right now. And then you're going to give it to this guy who has to come food shopping. And, and it's just, to me, it was like such a selfish moment in some ways. I wanted to be like, just yeah. put something over your mouth, like just to help anyone else who's around you. You just never know. And who wants to be part of that? Like, that's my thing too. It's like, God forbid, I don't want to be part of someone else's demise. But I think what's interesting, what you said is it's not even so much like we can stop it in its tracks as much as you're allowing the healthcare system to be able to help those who do get it to a point that it could like, cost their lives to, and then allow you guys the space and the time to probably prevent it from going there. Yeah. Yeah. And that was the, that was the problem in Italy. Italy has a very advanced healthcare system um, and the uh, critical care literature that gets published every year, the Italians are always a big part of that. They have some very, very big names in critical care. They pioneered some treatments and they've, they've been part, um, part of some major pivotal trials in critical care medicine. So it's not that their system is underdeveloped at all. Um, but they were hit so hard and so quickly with it that just keeping up with sheer numbers was very difficult. And then when you aren't able to meet your, uh, meet the volume of, uh, patients that are coming in and being able to test and isolate them properly, then you have your workforce getting sick as well. And then that adds to the problem. So, um, it's really, we're not immune to being um, hit like Italy was just, at, and New York is the perfect example of that. Unfortunately, they are really facing the same type of a uh, huge influx of sick patients that just the sheer numbers, it's not that they're not capable of putting people on ventilators or taking care of them properly. It's just when there's too many patients to take care of, it becomes very, very uh, challenging. Yeah, how is it, like, how is the, you know, we talk about the mental state of those who are staying home, but how is the mental state for you guys? I mean, it's interesting because when you're in there, you are the leader, you are setting the tone for what I could imagine are very scared patients, but yet are, I'm assuming you guys are scared at times as well. Yeah, I'd say, um, you know, uh, everyone's been talking a lot about, you know, what's on their mind. Um, anxiety levels are definitely higher. There's no doubt about that. Um, I see it in my colleagues and all of the people that I work with. Um, at the hospital. But I have to say, despite that anxiety, our medical team, and I can only speak about the team I'm working with, but I, I, I think it's reflective of teams all over. They've been incredible. Um, our nursing staff and respiratory care staff, there's never been a moment hesitation um, for them coming in and taking care of these patients and, and doing what needs to be done. Um, you could imagine like 
wouldn't you have people calling out sick or, or saying they, you know, they aren't available to work? And we haven't seen that at all. We've seen people volunteering and picking up shifts and doing everything they can to, to take care of patients. And because I think for most of us, we're looking at this not just as we have to take care of these patients who are sick, but we know that if we're not present, then we're not helping our team and that puts our team at risk. So, you know, I don't want to make my colleagues have to be in the hospital any more than is necessary. So I have to make sure I'm healthy for my shifts. And I know the rest of our team um, feels the same way. And then how is it for those of you who have families? Like I know you have a family because I would assume most people who are doing what you're doing are quarantining themselves in the sense of like, you're not going home to people there somewhere else or you're staying somewhere else. They're trying their best. Um, a lot of people don't necessarily have the means to fully quarantine. And so I, I feel really lucky that I, I have the ability to have my kids and my husband be somewhere else and be safe. So I, I, that doesn't have to be an added piece of anxiety for me. So I, I'm hugely grateful for that. Um, I can't even express how lucky I feel on that front. But for my colleagues and uh, the people I work with who don't aren't able to do that, I know we've talked about routines. I mean, people are getting undressed in their garages and showering the moment they walk in. Um, and some are sleeping in other rooms to minimize contact and exposure. We all have cleaning stations um, at our, our, you know, our front doors when we walk in to sanitize hands and such. I leave all my shoes, all my work shoes outdoors. So, you know, hopefully they don't disappear because I need them for work. But, you know, I don't bring them into the house because I can't afford to use too much sanitizing solution on them because I'd, I'd run out too quickly. So, and, you know, I never wear clothes that I've been at work in outside of the hospital. So all of us are changing our routine and that trying to minimize um, exposure to anyone we come in contact with. What's been the hardest moment for you so far through all this? I think the hardest moment professionally um, when I was working last because our hospital, like many hospitals dealing with this, have had to restrict visitors, um, which I, I think medically is unfortunately necessary and the right thing um, is very hard emotionally for families. Um, so when I was last working, um, I, I try to utilize FaceTime to update families um, as much as possible, which um, the feedback I was getting was that they appreciated that they could see their loved one at least. But then um, seeing someone and just seeing the distress and grief on their face um, and knowing that I can't, I can't help that more than I'm, I'm doing. I can't let them come in and they would just so love to be there at the bedside because we're used to having families in all the time. We don't have visiting hours, you know, people are allowed to be there as long as they want. Um, so that was really hard to, to that see add that. a whole another layer onto your job right now, because these patients have no one to make them feel okay or to take away. Yeah. So are you, and look, some doctors are better bedside manners than others, but like, is it kind of forcing everyone to play a little bit of support too, or is there just no time for that? And unfortunately the patient, like how, our nurses and I, you know, I will brag on my team like to the end of time because they are just, they're fantastic. I've constantly been impressed with how well um, our care team never seems to lose sight of that. It, and, and it's just been um, illustrated even more in this time. So the number of times I've, you know, walked up to rooms was we try to minimize the protective equipment. So if you don't have to go into the room multiple times, you don't, but the nursing staff obviously does. Um, and whenever I go by to just check again, and I'm looking through the window, and I'm trying to communicate with them to get some updates and such, 
the number of times I've walked by and I've seen a nurse just there holding someone's hand or just like, you know, gently rubbing their brow to just try to tell them it's going to be okay, provide them some comfort. Like these are things that no one's asking them to do this. They're just doing it. I, we had a, we had a patient in our hospital who we knew really well because she was part of our team and um, our respiratory care team, they were in there sitting with her and holding her hand because her family couldn't be there. And they brought pictures in from home to put in her room so that when she woke up, she could see them. Um, these are the things that I, I think we can't even list the number of times this type of stuff is happening. And this is what people everywhere are doing, I think. And you said you had a couple pregnant patients <clears throat> and that's gotta be hard too. It's always really hard. It's not that it's, it's never easy to have someone really sick in the ICU. And, you know, I don't mean to imply that, but when you have a, a young pregnant patient, you just, you feel the extra burden of, of two lives. I think you just, you can't help it. Um, and so it always is, it's always been a situation that's made me extra nervous, um, extra humble. And in this situation where we, we know this um, illness can, can be really severe it just it gave everyone that extra level of anxiety and desire to just, we've got to do everything we can. And thankfully, both of those uh, patients are doing really, really well. I love that. Is yeah. it interesting to be in the midst of something that is so overwhelming? And yet, like you kind of hinted at this earlier, there's not an expert in the field. Like there's yeah. no really... Like you were even saying, like Italy is known for critical care. They're always kind of in the books, but yet then they got pummeled more than almost anybody. So is it interesting to kind of be in the midst of kind of this evolution of this virus and not have like an expert to like look to? Uh, yeah, I mean, it is. Uh, we're getting, I mean, every day there are people who are gaining expertise, unfortunately, through experience. Um, and there are plenty of people who, despite the chaos and the fear surrounding this, they're working to... To, to learn from it in a very organized manner. So there are people, it, researchers and clinicians in China who have you know, done incredible work in trying to actually pull off clinical trials amidst this crisis. Um, same thing in Italy, same thing in New York. Um, we're in contact with our colleagues in Seattle and they've been putting on um, weekly um, conference calls, talks that they invite you know, everyone to attend remotely through Zoom. Um, to share their expertise and their experience. And so we, we are seeing many experts arise all over the place, and we're especially grateful for them because every, the sharing of knowledge has been so incredibly generous. Um, so many publications, like, for example, the New England Journal, which generally requires a subscription um, to be able to uh, receive most of their publication, um, any publication that they have regarding coronavirus now is free. To everyone. They're, they've waived um, any subscription fee. Um, JAMA's done the same thing. So all of these big name um, uh, uh, literature sites that we turn to and have always turned to, they're doing their best to try to disseminate um, the best possible knowledge to clinicians so that we have access to that. Do you feel like, you know, we talk about this kind of in the spiritual world or whatever, where you can feel, I mean, you, and you and I talked about this a little bit yesterday when we chatted that you know, this virus is not discriminatory. It's interesting and, and not even, and it's global. So it's in some ways taken down every boundary there is. And, you know, every, there's like no territory anymore. It feels like we're all in it. Um, and do you feel like, you know, and that feels like from like a personal point of view, but do you feel like medically you're feeling that too? Like, 
all of a sudden, like you just said, the information's flowing a little bit differently. Are you sensing that feeling too of kind of a more global atmosphere? It does, it does feel like that this crisis has generated a greater sense of community. Um, I do think for most people that they're, they're, they're seeing and they're feeling that. Obviously, um, we've probably all experienced what you had mentioned, you know, going to the grocery store that one day that you have to and, and seeing some people who maybe aren't quite um, internalizing it to the level that you would hope that they would. But I think for the most part, the people that I'm seeing my neighbors, um, those that I'm communicating with, really are viewing this as this is our problem. This isn't, this isn't something that they're dealing with or that only affects those people. It really is something that can affect every single one of us. And we're, I think for many, it's bringing together the realization that we're so, so much more connected than we realized. You know, we like to think about our individualism, um, but we're so connected to everyone we come in contact with um, and, and who we rely on and take care of. And just having to be at home more and not being able to see friends or hug them or shake their hands, I think it's bringing home uh, how important community is to everyone. And I think most people are taking that really seriously and, and viewing it as a global problem rather than an individual problem. Yeah, it's how it feels. I mean, it does, it feels like what might've started somewhere, it doesn't really matter because it's like, it's affected everywhere. I mean, I thought it was really funny when you saw people being like, oh my God, there's a bunch of countries I didn't even know existed that you saw on the list. That always made me laugh when people were like, I didn't even know that was a country. And like, they were right. on the list of like, yeah. You know, feeling it. How do you feel like, um, well, it's funny because I did say with the grocery store and I was talking about like maybe an old man, but I think what we're discovering too, I mean, I know someone well, who's young thirties, if not just 30, like 2% body fat could not be a healthier human specimen takes care of themselves and was in New York in the ICU for two weeks and, um, couldn't breathe, couldn't sit. I mean, that was horrible. Like almost died. I mean, yeah. it's amazing he's alive and no underlying disease, no underlying. So right. it, it is really interesting that, yes, of course, if you're someone older or with underlying, you're just automatically, it's going to be harder for your body to fight. But it's really not just, it, it can be really severe in almost anyone. Yeah, it, it, it can be. Um, it, people getting sicker or not doing as well in the ICU because of other health problems is not a new issue. It's right. it's part and parcel of critical care every day, not just during this crisis. Um, but I think people are starting to recognize that not having other health issues or being under the age of 60 or 50 is not protective. It may help improve your odds in terms of how well you fare with regards to the infection, but it's uh, by no means in a, a badge of immunity. So it's something that every single person top to bottom needs to take really, really seriously. I mean, there's still odds, which means you can always fall on the other end of it, which people forget yes. sometimes. Yes, yes. Like, it could be one out of 10, but you could be that one. And right, right. Not that we want people to operate out of fear, but this feels like one of the first times where you do need to actually internalize a little bit of the fear to like- Yeah, and hopefully a productive fear. You yes. know, we don't want people, um, you know, like fear, fear can be helpful in degrees and, you know, in, in a certain uh, manner. We want it to be directed. We want it to be um, help uh, empower people to understand and take the steps they need to do to protect themselves and protect those that they love. But we don't want people feeling hopeless 
um, locked up in their houses. Like there's nothing that they can do. So I, you know, we don't want to take it to that level, but we want people to take it seriously. No, absolutely. And I think that's a perfect way to say, it, cause I'm always the first to be like, don't let fear run you. But I think you're right. This is like a productive fear where it's like, just be smart about it. Yeah. And again, maybe, or look at it this way, like just enter the community, like, and do your part that you're responsible for within the community, the global mm-hmm. community. Yeah. If you could tell everyone one thing to just be aware of, or again, this, maybe let's talk about the symptoms for a second, because I know they change. And um, do you, are you feeling like people are being respectful of the idea of like, unless you really can't breathe, please don't come into the, don't start clogging the system, like stay at home and ride it out at home. Is people uh, being respectful of that? Yeah, I think I think surprisingly many people have, and uh, a lot of our patients at our practice I know have been really proactive about. Um, we've been offering, we've been ramping up telehealth so that we can stay connected with our patients, take care of them, help them in all manners that they need help, but hopefully keep them out of the office unless they really need to be in the office. So we're doing a lot of video visits, and. Uh, before sometimes before we're even able to reach out to someone and say, hey, we'd like to convert your your office visit to a video visit to help keep you home and keep you safe. They've already contacted us and said, I, I'm feeling okay. I think it's better if I don't physically come into the office. Is there some other way we can touch base? So yeah, people really are um, now you're everyday taking patients. that seriously. All of your everyday patients have underlying lung issues. Yes. So I mean, did yeah. you feel a sense of fear from them? Oh, um, yeah, we definitely had people who were anxious and calling in. um, But also, uh, me and all of my partners, I know, we've been especially worried about our patients. Um, One of the most wonderful things about um, being able to work in the office, as well as the hospital, is we have the ability to build relationships with um, the people that we take care of. And I have some patients that I've been seeing, you know, for seven years. And that's, that's a relationship that is more than just, you know, a quick office visit. Um, you really care about people that you've been connected with and you, you don't want to see anyone getting sick and being in the hospital. So it, it worries us. Um, I know all of my pulmonary colleagues have been worried about our patients with chronic lung disease and wanting to really do what we can to help keep them safe and support them. What should people know about if they do feel like they're getting these flu symptoms, they do feel like they're starting to get the virus, when is the moment that they should start coming in or calling and not trying to ride it out at home? That's a good question. Um, so um, I, I have a lower threshold. I, I think people should always touch base with their, their doctor if they're, if they're sick and they have any worries at all. So it's never a bad thing to make a call in and say, hey, this is what's been going on with me. I've had I've started having fevers or I have a new cough and I'm feeling a little breathless, whatever the symptoms are. They're primarily respiratory. Um, but if they're sick, they should call in for advice. Um, our organization has set up a, you know, a 24-hour nurse advice line with uh, physicians supporting that as well so that we're able to really field a lot of calls from people because we want people to be able to access advice and information. Um, and it, when there's any concern, we route them to an appropriate uh, evaluation center. So again, every organization is doing it a little bit differently. Um, ours, we have a rapid uh, respiratory evaluation center where people can be um, scheduled for a, an urgent visit. They'll do it by video if it's possible. They'll bring them in if it's necessary. They facilitate testing and the turnaround time for that has really increased. Um, and then they provide direct counseling to patients on what further symptoms to monitor for. For my um, chronic lung disease patients, thankfully, many of them have home oximeters um, where they can check their oxygen levels. Um, 
so I, if they have that or if they can get one, I always tell them I want to know if their oxygen levels are running any lower because that in and of itself will be a potential need to have them admitted to the hospital. Um, and just, you know, touching base with people frequently. So even if they call in and we check on them on day one and they're doing okay, um, day three might be a little different scenario. So you might need to touch base with someone every day for a bit to make sure that they're really doing okay. I mean, that's what seems so interesting about this virus is like people feel like they're getting over the hump and then all of a sudden the oxygen levels dip yeah. and then they're in the hospital. And even though they might yeah. have like a week at home feeling awful and then they're like, oh, I'm better. It, that's so fascinating to me. Yeah, it, the time course is a little different. It does seem a little bit unique. Most viral infections will run their course um, in seven to 10 days. And, you know, often, you know, five days is when people are hitting their peak. Um, but this virus does seem to have a more protracted um, early phase where people are sick, they don't feel good, but they're, you know, it, it still sort of generally falls into the category of a, you know, a flu-like illness or just a bad lower respiratory tract infection. And then, yeah, day seven, when most people say, oh, I'd be getting over this cold right now is when things can, can get really worse. So that the timeline of this is definitely, it seems a little different than what we've been seeing previously. Now there's been talk about two strains that they've thought is that true or is that just talk like where there was like a strain that they feel like was from china earlier and then one that's coming more from europe yeah i'm I, i've heard that i haven't read a lot about it so i'm i'm i'm, I'm not sure there's been lots of different talk um, online about you know have has one of these strains been out longer and we've actually had some exposure and to be quite frank with you i'm i'm not sure how true any of that is I'm not sure. I know that a lot, especially in the LA area, I feel like there's been a lot of articles about like, has LA already been exposed? Is there like a herd immunity already happening? Right. I'm so curious. Right. I think we once we have antibody testing, that will help a lot to, to get a sense of who has been exposed, provided the immunity lasts long enough and can be detected. Yeah. When do we feel like those are going to be available? Um, uh, that's a good question. I'm not, I'm not certain. Um, I know there, there's already tests, they're in development. And I believe, I don't know if one has been FDA approved yet or not. Um, but the ability to do the antibody test will be, um, it's much more readily available than so some of the things that we're holding out hope for, obviously, a new vaccine, um, better and better testing with shorter turnaround times. But an antibody test is, much closer to realization if it hasn't already been approved. I'm not, it changes every day. So I have, I'm not certain on that front yet, but that we're much closer to having access to that than a vaccine. And you said they will be great as long as your immunity is so, so meaning like the antibodies can last only so long sometimes and then can go away. Yeah. Like, not all infections. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, uh, not all infections provide lasting immunity. So you, you always get an immune response if you have a functioning immune system. But the immunity that is generated from that is not necessarily going to be long term. So you can get this sort of peak of um, antibody generation, and then it may fade over time. Um, so That's interesting. Yeah, so we're not certain exactly how long the immunity that we generate to this infection lasts. I've seen reports on both fronts suggesting that it, it is fairly long term. And therefore, if you've been um, infected and, and recovered from your infection, that you will have protection moving forward. And then I've also seen it written that we're, we're not so certain about that. It's not entirely clear that reinfection is impossible. Aye, and that's where it becomes a whole another question. Yeah. 
Well, I really appreciate this conversation. Thank you for your candor. Thank you for talking to someone like me who just doesn't understand everything and you really broke things down very easily. So I appreciate that. Oh, no, I, I appreciate the opportunity. I'm so glad you're able to sort of support um, your community there because I know people are looking for information, but also just connection. And that's really, really important right now, I think. And thank you. I know I can speak for everyone. Thank you for everything that you were doing. It's really amazing, just like the strength. I feel like all of you in this, anyone who's out there, sir. I mean, I just saw my Amazon guy and I was like, oh my God, thank you. Because <laughs> it's like, it's really kind and sweet that I know. And like you were saying, there's nobody who's called in sick, which is fantastic. But to know that it doesn't even cross any of your minds to not come in and serve and help and be there for other people is so beautiful and can remind a lot of us who are home sitting here that like, it could be worse and it could be harder and we're all playing a part, but what you guys are doing is incredible. And thank you so much for that. Well, thank you. We, we really appreciate everyone's efforts and we know this is, this is absolutely a team effort and everyone has their own roles that we're playing and no role is, is insignificant. So I think the fact that this is for right now in our region, at least going okay, is not just a function of what we're doing in the hospital. It's absolutely a function of what everyone at home and who are working in other essential jobs are doing every day. So we appreciate that. You're amazing, Dr. Stephanie. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and hopefully we will talk again soon. I might, I might bother you again if there's more questions. And I'm sure in two weeks, this whole thing will change and we'll have to like bother you again. <laughs> no, no problem. No problem at all. Enjoy your one day to yourself and try and relax and rest and stay safe, please. Okay. Thank you. Stay healthy. Bye. Bye. Ted Talks podcast would not exist without these incredible people, Nicole Rappi, Reem Edon, Hayden Fungheiser, Kim Bielek, and music by Alex Fetter. Thanks for joining us. If you haven't subscribed, please do. And also wherever you listen, please go and leave us a review. It's so greatly appreciated. It really does help us out. If you want to keep talking about all this stuff, please join our community on our secret Facebook page. Go to Facebook, search Den Talks Podcast, and join us there. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., at Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success.